You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon, testimonies from reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask, and I want to introduce you to Gary Machuda. This man is amazing for the Catholic faith. He's been at it for almost 30 years. He's an author, a speaker, apologist. Uh, one of his books is called Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, which I think is phenomenal. I've just, just looking at bits and pieces of it, huge, huge uh, emphasis on the Deuterocanon, something I really appreciate very much. And also he's on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. He has his own show called Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, welcome to the show. <laughs> Uh, it's awesome to be with you. I, I'm a big fan of the show. I've been really enjoying all the different testimonies and stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm really honored that you asked me to come on. I appreciate that. And, you know, hopefully you can have, you have plenty of time to go down all kinds of different paths for your testimony. Um, it won't be like me on your show where we had three 13 minute segments and within five minutes I was done telling my story. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cracked me up. So I'm learning to just pause and just take my time explaining. So anyway, Gary, the floor is yours. Oh, thanks. No, you did a great job. Uh, that was awesome uh, episode. I appreciate you coming on. And yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'm, you know, Eddie, I think I'm going to be one of those oddbirds for uh, the typical guest you have because I I'm, didn't leave the faith and I wasn't born outside the faith. I'm actually I was raised Catholic, and I kind of, um, God kind of hit me over the head with a two-by-four, and then, you know, all sorts of things changed. So I call it an inversion story, as opposed <laughs> to a conversion or reversion story. So so this is incon instead of recon. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to have to change the name now. <laughs> yeah, at least for this program. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, what I say, uh, I was raised in a really good Catholic home. My mother and father were awesome. Uh, my dad uh, was really a St. Joseph's kind of character. Uh, he worked hard. He sacrificed for the family, sacrificed for our faith. And uh, my mom, too, she was a prayer warrior, uh, had a deep devotion to Our Lady of Perpetual Help. And, uh, you know, that really influenced me growing up because I think it rooted me so that when everybody was going crazy in the teen years and college years and going off on tangents, you know, I just remained in the faith. But, you know, coming out of high school, though, um, I was much more interested in philosophy than religion. It was like one of the few areas that I really excelled at. And I had a really strange idea of the Catholic faith or faith in general. That, you know, there's this sliver, you know, one hour sliver where we worship God, and then there's everything else, as if like one piece of the, uh, it's like one piece of a pie that's disconnected from the other pieces. And so, you know, I always thought religion was very important, but it was kind of fuzzy, mystical, didn't really have intellectual backing. Uh, but philosophy, that's where it's at, which is kind of funny because it, it's now I have a completely different understanding. But, you know, that's where I was. And, uh, you know, I, I try to think back because this was in during the 80s, late 80s. I 
just got out of college. I uh, started my first full-time job. And people challenged me on my faith because this was about the time when a lot of Protestant fundamentalists were pulling Catholics out of the church. And uh, people did approach me. And the funny thing is, the, the few encounters I had, um, they, um, I handled it on a philosophical issue. You know, okay. I just point out problems with the reasoning and things like that. And, uh, but nothing, nothing uh, deeply religious or biblical or anything like that. And so uh, things, you know, things began to change. God had other plans. So I, I'm in my full, first full-time job. I'm thinking, all right, well, now I got, you know, I got in here. And now I'm going to start building my future. I'll get into business, uh, move up the corporate ladder, that type of thing. And God put a coworker in my life whose name was Susan. And Susan was a Protestant Baptist fundamentalist with a capital F. She was very fundamentalistic. In fact, uh, you know, her view of the church was that the church is the antichrist, that at the end of time, the Pope will you know, like be raised up to forcibly convert all the true Christians. And uh, yeah, and you know, that whole view of that the church was somehow diabolical. And uh, so she found out that I was Catholic and, and, you know, the strange thing, Eddie, is we talk and, you know, I, I believe I had living faith in Christ. I, I was baptized. Uh, but the strange thing was, according to her view, you know, I wasn't saved because I didn't have faith in eternal security. I didn't believe that I would be eternally secure. That's possible. I could lose my salvation. So for her, you know, she's looking at me as a potential crispy critter at the end of time. And, and so, uh, you know, she was really moved to try to evangelize me. And I was kind of perplexed as to why, because I'm Christian and really got nowhere. It just uh, lots of, um, lots of tears and crying and, you know, things like that. So uh, we did something interesting, I should say. I, I figured, well, you know what, we can't talk about our, our faith together. So maybe, you know, the best way to uh, discuss religious things is to find a common enemy, right? So uh, at that time, spiritual warfare was on the in the headlines, I should say. And uh, there were some high profile exorcisms that occurred in New York. And so I said, hey, Susan, well, you know, we're both against the devil. We're both anti-satanic, right? You know, why don't we just get side by side, look into spiritual warfare together, you know? And so we did that. So she, um, we started doing some research and she took me to a Christian bookstore, which is really a Protestant bookstore that doesn't want to be called Protestant. So it's just yeah. Christian. And they would have, you know, one shelf for the Catholics in the back so that Catholics would come into the store and be forced to walk through all the Protestant stuff, you know, to get to the back. And uh, so anyway, but there wasn't very much Catholic, good Catholic stuff on the shelves. So I was buying Protestant works on spiritual warfare and things like that. And, uh, and one thing I noticed was that as I'm reading these books, that these authors did some really weird stuff. For example, first, they really distorted the Catholic faith. Um, and then the one thing that I always remember is reading that Catholics worship Mary like the pagans worship the goddess Isis. And, I, and even me, you know, with my foggy Catholicism knew that was not anywhere near the truth. But, it, you know, it kind of struck me like 
for the first time that, wow, there's published works out there that really distort what Catholicism teaches. And then, Eddie, the other weird thing was that these books were recognizing that when you look at like satanic worship, stuff like that, that they were deliberately mocking Catholicism, specifically the mass. You know, they didn't have a black Bible study. They had a black mass. That's right. And in fact, one of the key things they want to do is desecrate the Eucharist. So I thought, and, and these books, you know, after they recognized it, they kind of had to explain it. And they would say, well, that's because Catholicism has, you know, one foot in a grave with the Satanist anyway. So, you know, that was the way they kind of pushed that aside. But the funny thing is, the more I study, the more I realize these people, they, they weren't caught up in Protestant Catholic issues. You know, they recognized spiritually that there was something significant going on in a mass and they hated it and they wanted to desecrate it. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really interesting. So anyway, um, so that thing was going on. And the other th cool thing that was going on was, uh, well, you haven't met me yet, but uh, if you did, you'd probably be surprised to find out I'm, I'm around six foot eight. I'm a very tall guy. And, you know, I played basketball in high school and, and you know, coming out of college, just pick up games, stuff like that. And uh, Susan's Baptist Church had a basketball league, like really cool. I mean, I'm playing on playgrounds, pick up games, you know, in the Detroit area. And they had a gym with referees and a scoreboard, you know, it's just like a real basketball game. So she said, uh, you know, Gary, uh, there might be some places on the church team if you want to play basketball with us. So I was like, yeah, cool. Sign me up. And then she says, well, you know, in order to qualify, you have to come to a couple of Baptist services at least a couple of times a month. So I'm like, well, uh, I don't see how that could hurt. So sure, I'll go. And Eddie, that was the first time that I went to a Protestant mass. Uh, I, I mean that facetiously. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, never, I never went to a non-Catholic church before. So, uh, so I went there and it was like this huge arena and everybody's dressed up and they all have their Bibles. And, uh, you know, they start with, they, they sing hymns. The, the preacher comes up, he preaches from the Bible. Everybody's opening their Bibles back and forth. And, and then they close with another hymn. And it was very, very impressive. I mean, it seemed like just scripture all over the place. And so Susan you know, afterwards said, well, what do you think of the service? You know, kind of hint, hint, wouldn't it yeah. be great if you became a member? And I told her it was, you know, very impressive. I liked it very much. And then uh, for some reason, I said, hey, Susan, since I went to your church, you know, turnabout's fair play. Why don't you come to, you know, a mass with me? And uh, you know what? By God's grace, she said yes. I mean, it really was God's grace that she agreed. Because, uh, like I said, her worldview was so different. Uh, in fact, I don't know if I shared this on the Coming Home Network, but Susan's uh, brother said, when he found out that she was going to go to church with me, said, I'd rather that you attended a witch's coven than to step foot in a Catholic church. Whoa. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, so it's amazing she said yes, you know, just that fact. And uh, so she came. We went to a mass and, you know, it was a very ordinary mass and uh, we left. And next time we got together Monday at work, I asked Susan, so Susan, what'd you think about it? And she said, oh, it was very nice. You know, thank you for inviting me, you know, kind of brush off the comments. 
And, uh, and I said, okay. And then just when I was about to turn, she said, I do have a question though. How do you Catholics hear the word of God and apply it in your life? And I had like an altar body moment where I sit back to a little kid trying to think, what is the answer to that question, right? And as and I knew the Baptist church, you know, it's it's all Bible, 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 right? So I'm I'm thinking, well, you know, we read. There's three readings in the from the Bible and the Mass, the liturgies throughout, and the priest preaches a homily that, you know, tells you how to apply it in your life. And I always remember her reaction. It was like, huh. Now, usually you would think, okay, that's a signal that she she agrees, right? But I knew Susan, and when she said, huh, it really meant, yeah, right, you yeah. know? So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I, I'm going to show Susan how it works, okay? And like I said, man, this is God's grace just starts storming into my life at this point. So next Sunday, I, I'm at Mass. I take myself off autopilot. I actually listen to the readings. And, uh, you know, I think it was something like lend expecting nothing in return. Okay, that was what the, the, the passage was about. And uh, so uh, I show up at work Monday. I'm like, hey, Susan, uh, what scripture were you guys reading at, at church? And the funny thing is she had to think about it. You know, so she must have been on autopilot too. And she told me and I said, oh, well, you know, our sermon, it was about, you know, lending, expecting nothing in return. And we were reading by, you know, the Bible and, and she was not impressed. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try to find somewhere, you know, in our shared life, because we're coworkers, you know, somewhere during the workday that I can show this, you know, apply this in my life. And it's funny because that day, it was either that day or a couple of days later, a mutual friend of ours was in dire straits. She needed cash right away. I just so happened to have a bunch of cash in my pocket. I said, here, take the cash. You know, you don't have to pay me back. I'm glad I can help. And I remember looking at Susan saying, you know, behold the Catholic who hears the word of God and applies it in his life, right? And, you know, she wasn't impressed. So, okay, okay, I'm going to do this again and again until she gets the picture. So I go to Sunday mass. I'm listening to the readings come back looking for, you know, sharing with Susan what the readings were and looking for some application. And then, you know, it's funny, Eddie, because every week, the readings at Mass really started having some serious application in our lives, either my life or Susan's life or something. And it got to the point where Susan, the anti-Catholic Baptist, was asking me, you know, actually coming up to me Monday saying, hey, what was the readings last week? It's almost like reading the horoscope, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. It's really, really getting intense. That is interesting. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then, um, then one day I was at a, um, it was a health insurance, uh, it was a claims analyst. I'm there at my cubicle, if you could picture a cubicle amongst many cubicles, typing in these medical claims and and a thought popped in my head you know i thought it's interesting that these satanists like all they want to do is desecrate the eucharist and it's like that's really interesting because back when i was an altar boy i knew that all the sacraments of the church in some way is tied to the eucharist you know baptisms usually are after mass uh, you know of course you have confessions so you can receive the eucharist everything seemed that's the center of the catholic life 
And that's the, the opposite center, you know, the anti-worship of Satanists. I thought, wow, that's, that's a really strange coincidence. And then um, it's like, all of a sudden, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. I wasn't in that cubicle anymore, but I kind of encountered the presence of God in an incredibly powerful way where, you know, everything that I've learned kind of like fit together and I could see how God, like everything's ordered to the Eucharist, you know, everything's ordered to Eucharist. And God was like lifting me up by it, my heart, like pulling me up towards him, that sensation where it was just growing and growing. And eventually I kind of croaked out the words, you know, stop, please. Cause I thought I was going to be shaken apart by this experience. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so God listened. And then I was back in my cubicle and like, I was uncontrollably crying. My hands were shaking. My legs were shaking. I can't imagine if somebody saw me, you know, they probably thought, you know, what in the world's going on with Gary? He's doing medical claims and, and he's just falling apart like that. Yeah. And, and my mind was just going all over the place. And, uh, and I remember like two thoughts occurred. The first thought to come through all this confusion was, wow, Christ is really present in the Eucharist. Like, I always knew that kind of in the fog sense that, yeah, somehow Christ is mystically present, but he's like really substantially present there. So that when you walk in front of the Eucharist, you're walking in front of Christ. You know, when you whisper something in front of the Eucharist, you're whispering something in front of Christ. Like, that real concrete presence that I just never fully fathom. Like that's the first thing Jesus is in the Eucharist that explains these polar opposites between Catholicism and Satanism. And then the other thought was, what was the reading last Sunday at mass? And it was about doubting Thomas, you know, unless I put my hands in your, your arms and your side, I will not believe. And I realized, you know, all these years, I was kind of like Doubting Thomas. You know, I didn't believe unless I actually felt. And uh, so anyway, I, I told Susan, okay, Susan, you know, I told her about the experience. Now, this is weird. Susan's a Baptist, right? So she's not a Pentecostal. Miracles, spiritual gifts, things sure. like that, strictly forbidden. I told her about what happened to me. And she's like, well, it must be true because she knew me. She knew I'm, I'm no way kind of the emotionalistic kind of person. I'm Lithuanian, which is one step from being a Vulcan. You know, there's no emotions. <laughs> so, uh, so, so she accepted it. And I said, you know, I don't want to go to these Christian bookstores anymore. I want to go to a Catholic bookstore. I want to, I want to learn everything I can about this faith that I kind of, you know, was sleepwalking through. And she said, great, let's do it. So we went downtown Detroit. There is a Society for the Propagation of Faith. And I went on a huge buying spree. I just went there. I didn't even know what I was looking for. I was just picking any book that looked important that I should read. So I'm pulling books off the shelf. And, uh, you know, I, I got a copy of the Code of Canon Law. I didn't know what Canon Law was. It was in English and Latin. I don't know Latin, but it looked important. So I put it on the, <laughs> on the pile. I mean, I was just pulling stuff. I got the, the Bible on audio tape so I could listen to scripture as I'm working. 
uh, and I had like two armfuls full of books. And since I'm six foot eight, that's an enormous amount of books. Okay. So I go up to the counter and I'm maxing out my brand new discover card. And, uh, and Susan's still in, in the, among the shelves. And she said, Hey, Gary, here's a book. Maybe you should read this. And it was Carl Keating's Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Uh, I forgot what the subtitle is, but it's something like uh, defending the Catholic faith from Bible Christianity or something like that. The funny thing is Susan misread the title. She thought it was a, a book written by fundamentalists that uh, debunks Catholicism, okay? Because all of her life, she's been going to Christian bookstores. That's the kind of books they have, right? Yeah. So she's like, hey, why don't you get this book too? So I figured, well, I'm going broke anyway. What's one more book? So I said, sure, throw it on the pile. And then, Eddie, I just started reading and reading and reading um, uh, just, uh, you know, incredible amount. I'd go to work. I would actually audio tape some of EWTN programs and uh, listen to EWTN and then for four hours listen to scripture at work, come home, read a book until I start getting tired, put the book down, pick up another book, read that till I get tired. And it was just like nonstop reading, listening. It was awesome. I'm learning all this stuff that like I never really looked into. And I finally got through the some of the pile and I came upon Carl Keating's book. And when I read that, it was like, wow, there are really good reasons why we believe what we believe as Catholics. I mean, there's logical reasons, historical reasons, biblical reasons. And Carl's book like debunks all this anti-Catholic stuff that I encountered in some of the other writings. And he started a ministry, I think a few years earlier called Catholic Answers that was just new. So I wrote Carl and I said, you know what, Carl, I want to do this. Like, can you, maybe we can open a branch office here in Michigan or something. And Carl was like, really cool. He, he said, no, we're, we're not thinking of franchising, but I'll help you incorporate. You can start, you know, start your own ministry. So I actually did that. I started a, a 501c3 corp. Um, file for nonprofit status, um, started doing ministry, doing talks. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to think. There, there's another line of the story, but I can't remember. Well, I guess we'll go through it. We got a little bit of time. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I was hoping to have this all within five minutes. So <laughs> I, we could expand. <laughs> yeah, we can go back. We can go back. Okay. What you said about... Yeah the about satanism that struck me about eight months ago that everyone seemed to be attacking the catholic faith not just the protestants a lot of what you said not all protestants of course but certain groups and then the satanists and a lot of people that were attacking the catholics were saying they're satanic Whore of Babylon, let's tie that into Synagogue of Satan, all these other things. But right. why, why would <laughs> these whatever demons try so hard to get to the Holy Eucharist? That was the exact same line of reasoning that struck me about eight months ago. I was already secure in the faith, but that took it to another level where, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so I think in the realm of apologetics and otherwise, 
when someone comes at a Catholic with that type of reasoning, start starts throwing out some of these pretty horrible labels, the Catholic needs to be prepared with something similar to that. Why yeah. is it that these Satanists will not go to the symbolic communion? Why will they not go to, you know, Lord's Supper? No, they want what's in the tabernacle. Yeah. They want what's in the tabernacle. So anyway, that was just, just a note. I thought that was great. And then in your journey, so early 90s, you're starting up the 501c3. When did you decide to get into uh, debates? And oh, okay. because I, that, was, that was actually how I first heard about you, um, mm -hmm. your debate with James White. And I thought we could just talk about whether or not that was a, is that a good Catholic route? Are you, what's your, what are your thoughts on debates in general? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? Let me take, I think I could take this story to that point. Perfect. Because, um, yeah, because it's really cool because God started opening doors. Um, there was a, uh, a friend of mine who was doing door-to-door -door evangelism at his Catholic church and he needed prayer partners. So I was his prayer partner. And then at the end, they had a mass and celebration and a luncheon for everybody involved. So he invited me to go to this church that's way on the east side. And I remember I'm always late. I always get lost in Detroit and Arbor. You know, it's, I don't know why, but I just can't find my way. So I, I left a little early, but I made like a beeline for that church. I was there really, really early. And I noticed a bunch of people filing into church. So I thought, you know what, Steph's waiting in the parking lot. I think I'll go in. And it turned out there was mass. And the funny thing is my friend didn't tell me it was mass. He just invited me to the luncheon afterwards. Uh, so I'm there and I'm at mass and the priest preaches a homily where he has an experience. He, he relates our experience he had in seminary that sounded a bit like what I experienced. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, Father, um, I'd like to meet with you. I got some stuff I'd love to discuss with you. So I met with him. I told him my story and he pulls out this Rolodex and he's like, oh, okay, so you want to do apologetics? Well, here's some people that you ought to meet. Uh, El Cresta, uh, Ralph Martin, who, by the way, I, that's one of the persons I forgot to mention, you know, just blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Lord. You know, here's all these people that are just falling in my lap. And then uh, he says, he stops and he goes, you know what, I got a different idea. So he close, closes the Rolodex. He writes down something. He says, I want you to go to uh, Sacred Heart Major Seminary and talk to Monsignor Ninestead, and uh, who is the head, and tell him your story. Say that I recommended that you take classes there and maybe take some theology classes. And so uh, so I'm like totally crestfallen, right? Because I've read about 600 books at this point on Catholicism. It's like, I know everything, which is kind of funny now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So, but I went there. And I interviewed, and he was awesome, a very nice, kind person. He put me in touch with a brand-new teacher, Dr. William Reardon, and Monsignor Blair, who was in charge of um, admissions or something like that. And so I, I took a class from Dr. Reardon, and we met afterwards. And the funny thing is, Eddie, I was reading these really eclectic works, like The Sacred and Profane by Marcia Eliada, right? And afterwards, I was talking to Dr. Reardon, and he was reading the same stuff, the same books. And we just hit it off. We're like two peas in the pod. Well, fast forward, uh, one day I get a call from Dr. Reardon. This is a couple of years later. 
and he says, yes, Gary, um, this is this is Bill. Um, I have some people in my uh, master's Christology course that I think you ought to meet. I said, oh, really? Like, who, who are they? And he said, well, there's a El Crusta and also a Steve Martin, uh, uh, Steve Ralph, uh, Ralph Martin. I always get those mixed up. Not Steve Martin. That would be cool. <laughs> that would have been but cool, was, too. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for Steve. You would have been <laughs> laughing. Yeah. Yeah. No, Ralph Martin. I'm thinking like, wow, you know. God still got me there, just a different route. So I met with L. L's like, hey, there's a whole bunch of us converts in this area. Sounds like you're doing the same kind of work. Let's get together. So I met Steve Ray right when he was converting. So he's still Protestant, but very much Catholic at that yeah. point. Met Rob Corzin, who works for Scott Hans, uh, St. Paul Evangelism. Um, just uh, Dave Armstrong, just everybody, right? So, um, so I. God kind of puts all these people in my life. And you asked about debating. Well, I was doing a talk up in Northern Michigan with um, Unapologetics and also along with Pat Madrid. Mm. And uh, at that time, I just wrote the manuscript for why Catholic Bibles are bigger. And uh, during lunch, I said, hey, Pat, look at this manuscript, you know, check it out. Let me know what you think of it. And he said, you know what, I was tapped to do a debate with uh, James White, who is a Reformed Protestant, on this topic for their next big debate conference. No Would you be kidding. interested in doing it? Yeah. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. You know, um, I was familiar with him. I've, I've heard his debates before, and, and I knew this topic very well. So, yeah, I'll be glad. So we ran across, across to James. James said, yeah, sure, I'll debate him. And... Uh, that was how I first got into debates. Um, but I also did some stuff too on Protestant radio and yeah, things like that. And, and boy, I could tell you stories. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. <laughs> because yeah, go that ahead. was like the Wild West days of, uh, you know, you're just a gunslinger out there and, and getting hijacked by people and things like that. I can only imagine. Wow. So did you feel early on, I don't know if it's the right term, but uh with apologetics, I'm sure a lot of people want to be generalists as well as specialists in certain areas. Did you feel that you were getting pigeonholed into the Deuterocanon and you were trying to branch into other areas? Or is that really where you wanted to be? And is that where you've spent most of your time? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I, I actually, my first book was uh, a response to James McCarthy, not MacArthur, but McCarthy. That's right. I uh, remember the gospel reading according that up to too. Rome. Oh, he wrote a yeah, book first, and, uh, Gospel According to Rome. Is that what you said? Okay. Yeah. And I responded to it. Yeah. It was like the playbook for all anti-Catholics at that time. Uh, so, um, you know, I did that. And then in my ministry, every time we had a conference, there'd always be a question about why do Catholic Old Testaments have seven books that Protestant Bibles don't? I mean, every conference, it was routinely, and you listen to Catholic Answers Live, there's always a question on it. It's, you know, it's just ubiquitous. People want to know. And it, it is a great question. In fact, it's a very fundamental question, because if you want to be a Bible Christian, you got to know what is the Bible. You know, if you're missing books, your interpretation of the Bible is going to be very different than if you accept those books. So uh, yeah, I dove into it. And it's just, it's a fascinating subject, Eddie. And then afterwards, I wrote, um, I have to think about 
how to wolf proof your kids. Um, I wrote, uh, you know, um, making sense of Mary, hostile witnesses, stuff like that. But it, you know, the weird thing is, by the way, why Catholic Bibles are bigger is the first book written by a Catholic dedicated to that topic since I think like the 1890s. No. Okay, so there's a huge <laughs> gap there. And the thing is, I'm the only fish in the pond <laughs> when it comes to, I mean, there's articles, there's chapters devoted to it, but no one's ever done like a full book length treatment of it. I just and, wonder uh, if yeah. people have talked about how Carl ushered in this, this era of apologetics and, and spurred many people on to cover topics that had not been covered in a long time. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, and the other thing too is I just can't get away from this topic. Whenever I'm researching, reading, I, I learn new things. It's like, wow, I wish I knew that when I did the book. Yeah. So I did an updated, revised version of Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. I wrote a, had another book, which is different, called The Case for the Deuterocanon. Canon. Because after my debate with White, uh, a Protestant emailed me and said, you know, I thought you did well in the debate, but you didn't really give any positive reasons why we should accept these books. Because I don't care about Luther. You know, I don't care about these ancillary things. I, sure. I want positive reasons. So I thought, you know what, I should write another book that just gives a positive case. So I did the case for Deuterocanon. Canon. Got it. And so it's kind of like, I'm the only fish in the sea so far. <laughs> so if, you know, so I get lots of referrals about it. And I'm fascinated about it. And for some reason, the Lord just keeps having me stumble over all these cool things that, you know, scholarly journals will mention, but they'll kind of not really pay attention to it because it doesn't fit you know, the narrative of the Protestant Old Testament canon. So, yeah. So I don't know. Am I happy about it? Um, it's nice to be good at something. <laughs> uh, but, you know, on the other hand, too, there, I, there's a lot of other things I've discovered that, you know, hopefully the attention that's generated by that book will overflow to the other stuff that I've written. Yeah. And I thought it was cool when Matt uh frad pulled together the apologetic conference i was that that was late last year or fall yeah time. yeah and yeah i watched your video and it was deuterocanon i thought that was great because everyone uh, many of the apologists do cover a wide range of topics but they have they have a lane that's very narrow and they can speak to that and i thought it was very well done because they covered i don't know 60 different topics or whatever it was um and so i just think it's important and i you know, I, well, we'll get into this actually when we're back on, on your show. I don't want, I don't want to detract from, from your testimony. I oh, no, wanted to no, know please. what, what happened with Susan. Let's go. Ah, on. yes. Well, you know, after, um, what was it? 10. Well, the thing with Susan was she, she was kind of bewildered about what I was doing, but she thought it was good that Catholics are diving into the Bible and, you yeah. know, interested in the faith. So I said, hey, Sue, I need, a, um, I need a copy editor. We were actually publishing a magazine for a little while just to look over, make suggestions. Would you do it? And she said, sure. Which, um, by the way, part of her job description is she has to read this Catholic material, right? <laughs> so after 10 years uh, working with us in the ministry and stuff like that, she, uh, she had a moment where it all clicked. You know, God's grace worked. Um, it was Ephesians 2 that there's one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. 
And, you know, for her, she was baptized like six times, you know, recommitted herself to the Lord six times. Sure. And for, and it just clicked, you know, there's one faith and there's one baptism. So she decided to come into the church. And actually this is interesting because on the day of election, you know, it's one of these rites that you go through before you are, yeah. you know, received in. Uh, we did a book table at a conference in a nearby church, Susan and I, and I, we came in near the end. We relieved the people that were working there. And coming back from mass was the celebrant who was now Bishop Ninestead, the person that I talked to when I got into the seminary at the beginning. Wow. And he, he came right up to our table because our table is like right in line, you know, right when it comes to the narthex. And so I said, Susan, let's talk to the bishop. So we told Monsignor, or Bishop Ninestead that, you know, Susan's coming to the church and the story. He remembered me too, which is amazing. That is. But, you know, when you're six foot eight, you know, it's kind of hard to forget. That when is you see somebody that. <laughs> <laughs> so I forget everybody. They know me. But anyway, so he gave us a blessing. And I thought, man, this just came all full circle, didn't it? That, you know, our Lord. And who knows, maybe our Lord doesn't really want me as a professional apologist. Maybe the whole thing was for her conversion. Isn't that so profound what you just said? Yeah. We, we, we assume at times I'm in your will, God, or as far as I understand it and for the purposes that I comprehend, but he's light years beyond. Uh, (laughs) That's a good, (laughs) that's a great comment. Who knows if you do, if you did all of it for the sake of, one soul. Yeah. And that's ultimately that counts. You know, it's God's very efficient. He'll send exactly who needs to hear you. Exactly. So never be fooled by numbers is the right person's there. God sent them. You just have to trust God. Yeah. Well, what you said about her having to read uh, the different Catholic material that made me think of Ken Hensley, how he had mentioned that in the process of, this is before he had converted, but he was compiling early church father quotes, and he had his wife, who was very skeptical at the time, basically take them from the books and type them up. He said this was back in the day, so she had to type them up, and in that process of typing up all these quotes from the hundreds and two hundreds and three hundreds, um, that changed her. I just thought that was fascinating. Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing with me. I didn't even know these sources existed, even though I went through Catholic grade school and high school. I mean, let's face it, if you're in grade school and high school, you're not really paying attention to what's being taught. But it's like, that was all land unknown. And then once I was exposed to it, it's like, wow, that is really, really an eye opener. Mm-hmm. And it fortifies your faith, too, because it's like, I, I am a Christian standing in line with you know, all my brothers and sisters that have lived centuries ago. You know, we we all could attend the same mass. We all could affirm the same creed. Yes. You know, and we all receive the same Eucharist because we're all part of the one body of Christ. And that's just mind blowing. If Catholics could get that, you know, come to reality and see, you know. Uh, that would just transform the church and ultimately transform the world. That is such a great point too. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned who, who was it that was comparing um, 
who was comparing ISIS? Can you go back to oh, that? Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the author or even the book. It was just one of these uh, spiritual warfare books. Got it. But I, that was, to yeah. remember my point on your show where if you just find the villain anywhere and you want to find some attributes in the villain and then yeah. find the parallel. That's right. Yeah. Go with that. So you yeah. can find, name any mythical thing, any demonic thing witchcraft you name it did you see that symbol it's inside the papacy you know it's in the papal office and let's attack that it's it's clear and people just fall for this stuff day and night yeah. they don't question anything um upside down cross they don't think about peter they don't even want to hear about peter they just want to assume <laughs> yeah that's not awesome. point and that's true not only for catholics and protestants but you know there's unbelievers who use the same argumentation yeah that Christianity is a knockoff from paganism because, you know, look, here's a, a two like a things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, um, look, the pagans had pictures of mothers with children and Christians had pictures of mothers with children. Yeah. So they must be related, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so obvious. No, we have to talk about this stuff more often, I feel, because yeah. it's one of those things where people, innocent people just kind of veer off because they, they say it must be true. <laughs> These things are similar. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. what what are you working on now? I'm sure hands-on apologetics takes up a fair amount of your time. Um, that, by the way, you you do such a great job on that show. I'm assuming that there's that. You probably have other books you're working on. You're probably reading another 600 books right now. What's what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, you do a fantastic job too. So uh, please, you know, uh, you're doing awesome, and I'm going to have you on my show more often. And oh, I appreciate and that. Promote your channel because it's great content, and you handle it very well. Um, yeah, what am I doing? Well, we opened up a channel on YouTube called the Apocrypha Apocalypse channel uh, okay. William Albrecht and myself that's right so it's a channel on YouTube de dedicated to all the issues of the, the Old Testament canon because I figured people a lot of people don't read anymore but they'll watch a video so I'm just crunching down a lot of the information um, I also have a book that God willing will be published in the fall by Catholic Answers Press nice. it's called Revolt Against Reality okay and what it is I basically do is get this it's 60,000 words <laughs> history of mankind, basically where I show how the incarnation is kind of like we're the pinnacle of human history where heaven and earth are joined humanity and divinity, um, material, spiritual, everything's right there in the incarnation. And then there's these counterattacks in history, Christological heresies, denial of humanity, and I, I trace the I trace throughout history some lines of thought, like through these Christological heresies, through Islam, through early uh, medieval age with William of Ockham, through Luther and the reformers, through the Enlightenment, and I show trace the history of why today everything is so insane. It's really kind of the full flowering of these denials of the incarnation. That should be out in the fall. That should be a lot of fun. Now, why why that specific length? Is that just something where you kind of know your target audience and people like shorter books, 200 page books, that kind of thing? Is that because I know yeah. that you I read about how you your original manuscript for 
the Catholic Bible book was probably a hundred thousand, or I don't know what it was. It was no over a thousand pages potentially. And then you had to just whittle it down to less than 400. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Well, that's me, Uh, but you know what? It's so much easier to write a giant book than a short book because you really have to trim off a lot. You have to be very succinct and interesting and give the whole picture all at the same time. And the basic reason is because uh, the publisher says we want books of this. Size. Sure, so it's sure, like, sure. okay, fine. Which I'm very glad actually, because I think the version we have now is very lean and trim and I think more accessible, easier to understand for people because they don't have all the pedantic sure. notes and stuff. Yeah. I just yeah. summarize it. And, uh, I like you know, it. It, Eddie, it's a really fascinating study that I think, We'll answer a lot of questions that people have as to how did we get here? You know, why yeah. is the world so messed up like it is? Yeah. Um, since I have you, I have to um, ask you this. So if someone were to come up to the average lay Catholic and pose that question, why are Catholic Bibles bigger? Or what was it that the Catholic church did? I've heard that, you know, they had to remove things because, or sorry, they had to add things because of a response to the reformation. How would you succinctly guide them? Well, the short snarky answer is because God inspired more books. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's not really satisfying. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I do is uh, I point out, look, this isn't a matter of biblical interpretation. It's not like people can have different opinions. It's really an, a question of history. And we just have to look at the history because the Council of Trent had working documents that explained how they thought and why they did what they did. You can check it out. And when you do, what you find out is that they were actually incredibly conservative. They just wanted to rubber stamp previous councils like Florence that met in the 1400s and especially the fourth uh, century uh, uh, list that were given, you know, under uh, St. Augustine, because that's the official law of the church. And they felt that even just adding comments would have, uh, you know, made it as if it's an open question when it really wasn't. So from a historical perspective, there's no question that the Council of Trent simply reaffirmed what had already officially been affirmed in previous councils. So the question is, well, then what happened within Protestantism? And that's also a matter of record of history. And uh, in Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, I actually, in the the second edition, I, I show you where Martin Luther early on when he, after the 95 thesis, was in these written debates with Catholic theologians, where he said that he's only going to appeal to scripture, and actually in one document he says canonical scripture, and he quotes from the Deuterocanon of the Old Testament, in debate to serve as proof. I did and, not know that. Wow. Yeah, and it was July 8th, 1519, at the Second Lipstick Disputation, with uh, the Catholic theologian Johann Eck over purgatory. And Eck cited actually several texts in favor of purgatory. And to which, it's interesting, Luther responded by disputing the interpretation of these texts. All the way up until 2 Maccabees 1246, where it says it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loose from their sins. And Luther said that there's no proof of purgatory that can be found 
in scripture that can be entered into debate and serve as proof. He says, the book of Maccabees has weight with the faithful, but it won't prevail against the obstinate. So he's basically saying, you can't admit this in debate to serve as proof. Yeah, everybody accepts it as authoritative, but it's not authoritative enough to overturn me on this point. That's essentially what he's saying. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So from that, then later on, Eck, you know, it's Eck in German means corner. He lives up to his name in this debate. So he corners Luther and he says, look, Luther, these councils have affirmed that these books are canonical scripture. You can't dismiss them. And so he appeals to St. Jerome. St. Jerome was the only first person in antiquity, I should say, that consigned the deuterocanonical books to the Apocrypha and denied that they could be used to confirm doctrine. And by doing that, he dismisses not only 2nd Maccabees, but the rest of the deuterocanon too. So from that point on, Luther could no longer admit the deuterocanon. He can't appeal, he didn't appeal to it. He rejected it whenever it was raised. He thought it has, it should be read in yeah. some sense it's part of scripture yep but it's not fully canonical and in fact you know eddie another thing that i found was it was in the resolutions to that debate that luther for the first time started disparaging the epistle of james yeah yeah because it was he started coming up with this idea that there's different books with different authorities depending on whether he hears christ preached in them yeah, and I didn't understand. I think he looped in at some point revelation into the Book of James type conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I don't yeah, remember. Uh, I don't remember why. I don't know yeah. what it was with Revelation, but well, there's there's a Deuterocanon of the New Testament too, which consists of James, Hebrews, Jude, Second uh, and Third John, and Revelation. That's right. And what you yeah. teach about Hebrews eleven, that list. Maybe you can get into that as well. Oh, yeah, that I love that. Fascinating. 1135, I believe. Yep. Good yeah. call. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that one actually, that was something I didn't realize till I was pressed to debate in a recently a, a Protestant on the canon, um, where he kept saying that there's no, what he calls metonyms that are used for the Deuterocanon in the New Testament. Like, it is written, thus saith the Lord, the scripture okay. says, Sure. Uh, as well, there, never do you see any of those used for the deuterocanon. And uh, earlier, I had developed an argument, which still is strong, but I think it's a little stronger now. That uh, you know, you don't have to go by quotations alone. This is one of those uh, sleight of hands that people use. You know, they'll say, "Well, there's no direct quotation of the deuterocanon in Scripture." Well, you know what? Scripture can also refer to other books by referencing them. It doesn't have to be a quotation, right? Yeah. Uh, like, and that uh, would Jesus. also mean that any book that is not referenced yeah. that way is invalid, aside from Deuterocanon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. because uh, there's a lot of books that are never mentioned yeah. or quoted or alluded to or referenced. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so um, the argument goes like this, and this is really interesting. In Hebrews 11, that's the great faith chapter, where, uh, where the author is listing all the men of old who gained approval or the men of old who were attested to. And so he then begins with uh, talking about uh, Abel and uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jetha, you know, all these, it's very clear he's going through scriptural characters, right? Uh, and in a near chronological order even. Yeah. He's going through, giving these examples of these people who had faith and uh, showed obedience. 
And he says they're, they're attested to. Um, and then in verse 35, 1135 of Hebrews, actually 35b, he says, some were tortured and would not accept release for the sake of a better resurrection. Okay. Now, so he gives three identifying marks. There is no one in the Protestant canon who satisfies all three of those markers. Some satisfy one. There might find somebody who might satisfy two, but no one does all three. Okay. That they, they uh, were tortured. Actually, it's specific. It says they were beaten like uh, beating a drum. Uh, they refused release for the sake of the re a better resurrection. The only characters this could refer to is the Maccabean martyrs in 2 Maccabees 6 and 7. In fact, uh, he, my opponent denied it, so I did a video on the, the Apocryphal Apocalypse channel where I went through 50 Protestant commentaries and showed how they all say this is 2 Maccabees 6 and 7, right? It's undoubted. So, so he's listed within all these biblical characters. But what I found out was that that word is attested to, is a metonym in the epistle of Hebrews. Every time Hebrews uses that word, martyrio, you know, attested to. Sure. It, it refers only to scripture. In fact, he introduces quotes from scripture using it is attested or the Holy Spirit testifies, right? Yeah. It, and so, and what's even more curious is there are brackets because he introduces the list in Hebrews 11.2 with by it, the men of old were attested. And then he concludes his list in verse 39 with all of these were attested. So it's kind of, bookends. it's what's called an, yeah, inclusio is the fancy word, but bookends, right? So everything in between these two brackets are attested to, right? They are found in scripture. So you have a, a scriptural metonym where Hebrew, uh, second Maccabees, the Maccabean martyrs are attested to. Yeah, and that's that's huge. And it was only because this person kept pushing me in debates and needling me and stuff like that that I look closer at it and it's like, wow, there's a metonym right here. That's that's exceptional. Uh, that's yeah. exceptional. Not to mention, um, so for the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe Tobit was found, right? Were uh, Maccabees found at all, or was it uh, Tobit and Sirach? Maybe I, yeah, you know. Tobit. Tobit Sirach and also uh, the Epistle of Jeremiah, which is part of the Book of Baruch. That's right, unbelievable! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was good to be able to geek out a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a rookie. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on the dude girl can, and we'll be here till the, you know, wee hours in the morning. I'm sure. But uh, I'm sure. Well, great. Um, yeah, I think we'll we'll leave it there unless you have anything else you want to share about what you're working on. Uh, everything you mentioned and I've mentioned about you, I will leave in the description and hopefully more and more people will find you. Your website is very polished, just so you know that as well. I'm a oh, big, big fan of websites. So I uh, just wanted to mention that as well. So thank you for your time yes. and thank you for that incredible testimony. I had no idea about the I don't know. Do you refer to it as an out-of-body experience? How do you typically present that? Yeah. I, or you just say, I, I don't idea. know. What that it's was. kind of like some sort of ecstatic experience. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I have no idea how to, how to describe it, but um, yeah, but thanks be to God it happened because yeah. it kind of woke me up.
I always describe it as a spiritual two by four. God had to smack me in the back of the head to get my attention. And my wife can attest to, you know, the need to do that from time to time. To, sometimes with a real board. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. Well, great. Thanks, Gary. Um, thank you all for, for listening. And until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.